Let me invite you for the last time to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. We'll be reading and I'll be preaching on verses 9 through 20. Before we read God's Word, let us go to the Lord again, asking Him for His divine illumination. O Heavenly Father, whose law is perfect, converting the soul a sure testimony, giving wisdom to the ignorant and enlightening the eyes, we humbly implore you through your boundless goodness to enlighten our eyes by your Holy Spirit so that we may truly understand and profess your word and live according to it with godly zeal. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of God. Mark sixteen nine through 20. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him, as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them, as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name, and they will... In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word, Thanks be to God. May be seated. My pastor, mentor, many years ago, said that when he was finishing any book, it was like saying goodbye to a friend. When you study a particular text of Scripture, you read this individual's style, you read his love for the Lord, become acquainted with him, become intimate friends, even just across the page here. It's it's a joy to be ministered to by these messengers, these authors of the Word of God. And so when you conclude a text, when you finish preaching through any book, it's like saying goodbye to a friend. Of course, we can always read the Gospel of Mark, and we ought to regularly. But I feel this particularly with this Gospel as we come to this final sermon, number 65, from his glorious gospel. I say this because I don't intend to preach through the gospel of Mark ever again. 
Though there might be select messages, so many books of the Bible, so little time, got to preach them all. I started preaching the Gospel of Mark on January 31st, 2021, just two weeks after the former senior pastor took another call. And when I started, I didn't know if I would get the opportunity to preach all of this to you. And I'm glad that I do. Considering this uncertain future, I chose Mark mainly for its brevity. 16 chapters, that's much shorter than the other three Gospels. And like others, I had partially believed that this Gospel was really just a a shorter version of the Gospel of Matthew. So why read the cliff notes of the Gospel of Mark when you can get the whole story in the Gospel of Matthew? Such wrong-headed thinking that was, of course. Matthew writes differently from how Mark writes. And I trust that you have, if you've been with us, you've seen the beauty of Christ and the glory of Christ on full display each week as Mark is just unfolding this wonderful text to us. Story after story, beholding the glory of Christ. He has fed us well these almost two years and often in the form of literary sandwiches. It will be sad. It was sad when I was finishing writing this. Sad to say goodbye in this sense. And I trust that you will have many more questions of Mark. You can continue to read this gospel. You can continue to ask me about this gospel. And you can anxiously await asking Mark when you see him in heaven. The concluding point in this gospel can be seen on every page of his gospel. The Christ never gives up on his people to proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And before Christ commissions his disciples, which he does, he rebukes them. And now we ask, on what basis does Christ rebuke these disciples? It is on the basis of their unbelief. We see twice the proclamation of the gospel, of the fact that Christ had risen Verse 9, read this with me again. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. So as Jesus makes his way to his apostles, he first appears to this woman. And you can read about this more in, in John, in John's gospel. But we saw this woman earlier in Mark 16, verse 1. Remember, she was at the tomb. She was the first on the scene. Mark mentions that she, had been, that she had seven demons cast out of her. Mark doesn't make a mention of this at all in his gospel, but Luke does. Seven demons were in this poor soul. But Mark does, very early on in his gospel, in chapter 1, verse 39, speaks about how Jesus exorcised many demons. He drove out demons from the hearts of many. Let me bring in another text here. Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 45. Jesus says that some unclean spirits, after they leave a person, will decide to return and bring with them seven more to make the demon possession seven times more, seven times worse than it was before. One more text to throw in the mix here. In John's Revelation, chapter 1, 
he refers to the Holy Spirit as the seven spirits before the throne of God. When we realize this, we see what God through Mark is doing. He's speaking of, he's using language of, of fullness. Life on earth for Mary could not have been worse. She was living in hell on earth. Hell had inhabited her. She was fully possessed. She had the fullness of evil in her. And now, the Lord, who is a life-giving spirit, appears to her. Now, when did he kick these demons out of her? We don't know. Perhaps two or three years before. But here, now, this life-giving spirit, Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, appears to her, and she she runs and tells the apostles. She brings tidings of joy to these mourning disciples, to these grieving apostles. She gave them the only message that could lift their downcast spirits. He is risen. Perhaps her message would have been the same as that of the angel. He has he risen just as he told you. But hers was not the only proclamation. Verse 12, after these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. So before linking up with the 11, Jesus makes this pit stop on the road to Emmaus. You can read a more detailed account in Luke's gospel, chapter 24. But Mark offers just enough for us to know that Jesus appeared to these men and that the apostles were told what had happened. So before Jesus even reaches the 11, proclamation about his resurrection has been made to them at least twice. They've heard the report. He has risen. Before we read their response, it's good just to to pause here and ask ourselves, do we share Mary's excitement? Do we share these men's excitement? The, The news of the risen Lord. Have our affections gone cold that they are no longer set ablaze by this glorious truth that he has risen? Are we more excited to tell other people about that newest movie we've watched or that newest book we've read than we are the greatest story ever told, the one that has penetrated our hearts, the one that indwells us by the Spirit? What do we get more joyful about? What do we get more excited about? Do we positively pester other people with the news that Jesus is risen just as he said? Let us pray that we will not be so pleased with earthly things that we functionally deny the source of hope and life that fuels our every day and, of course, our eternity. While treating Mary and these men like the boy who cried wolf, the apostles didn't believe. Perhaps Remarkably, most of the apostles do not believe either account. Perhaps you could say, well, they had reason to disbelieve the first report. It was from a woman, after all, and her testimony isn't admissible in court, so why would we believe her now? Well, she did have seven demons kicked out of her, and you know she's been ministering with Jesus 
these three years, that's a good reason to believe this woman's testimony. Mary's account was, to her dismay, met with laughter. It was considered nonsense, delirium. We have to wonder what went on in their minds when they rejected this account, when they wouldn't believe it. Did they think that maybe a demon had re-inhabited her and made it seven times, 14 times worse than her state before? Of course, they know how, how she was formerly plagued. Could this just be the stuff of demons? Could, could the demons be deceiving them through this woman? In Luke's gospel, it says that the apostles thought that this was an idle tale, a pipe dream, the stuff of legend only, not, not history. And it comes from, well, silly woman. Why would we believe this? But they can't chalk up the second proclamation to the stuff of silly women. For these disciples on the the Emmaus Road were men themselves. But these men were disbelieved as well. What they saw just had to be a mistake. Had to have been a misunderstanding. Had to have been an exaggeration. After all, Jesus appeared to them in another form. So clearly they were just misunderstood. Might have looked a little bit like Jesus, but... We know what Jesus looks like, and it wasn't him. So they don't believe these men's report. How frustrating it is to know something, to even experience it yourself, and then to be so overjoyed that you you just got to share it with someone, only for that report to be met with disbelief. Like a kid who sees a rare animal or an insect in the backyard who then runs in the house to tell dad, only to be told, hmm, that's that's interesting, son. I don't don't think that's what you really saw. Son runs out, and the dad reflects, ah, what imagination that boy has. But here is the best news ever. He has risen. The best news. The pearl of pearls showcased in in words of pristine truthfulness and full of joy at the thought of the Son, at the sight of the Son. But no, it can't be. Surely he's not been raised from the dead. So we have, despite three predictions from Jesus, three separate times, Jesus says, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die I'm going to rise three times. Despite that, despite Mary's report, despite these men's report, most of the apostles still did not believe. They refuse to believe and so be comforted. Like Jacob, who was deceived into believing his son Joseph was torn to pieces and refused to be comforted by his children, these grieving sons of Jacob did not believe but refused to be comforted by the truth. Not by deception, by the truth of this daughter and these sons of the greater Joseph. What must be done then to men who will not believe and so be joyful? Verse 14, afterward he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at a table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. Christ rebukes them. This word rebuke is always used to speak of mockery, disgrace, insult, or shame. 
Jesus uses it in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. He speaks of, of, of believers receiving the insults of the world. It's used in Mark's gospel of those who mocked Jesus when he was on the cross, shamed him when he was on the cross, insulted him when he was on the cross. It's used by Paul of Christians bearing the reproaches that fell on Christ, they fall on believers. In Scripture, it refers to believers taking on the persecution of the world, taking on the insults that the world levels against them. Shame. Disgrace. What is Mark doing? He is painting these apostles as unbelievers, like people whose hearts have not been changed. That's not to say that their hearts hadn't been changed. I believe at this point they had been. But they're acting like unbelievers. They're acting like those with hardened hearts. In fact, the same language is used as it was in Mark 6, 52. With hardened hearts, they did not understand Jesus about the loaves. They couldn't get in their minds that Jesus would do so miraculous a thing and that he was the bread of heaven. They acted like unbelievers. They acted like the Pharisees, like the scribes, like the Herodians, like the world that heard the message of the gospel and said no. There's a lot of talk about what do you have to believe in order to be a genuine believer? What's like the bare minimum? Well, believing what Jesus says and what he does, that's, that's the bare minimum. These men did not believe what he said would happen. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise. No. It can't be that he, he, he did rise. So they're functioning as unbelievers. Christ then is shaming his apostles here. Do you, do you feel the tension? How dare they disbelieve? If anyone is going to believe, it has to be these apostles. Their unbelief was truly shameful. And you can just picture their, their heads down. No one's saying a word when the risen rabbi rebukes them sternly. Very similar to how he rebuked them when they did not let the parents bring their children to him. He was very angry with him. Is, that what, is this what we normally see in this, at this section in the gospel with the Great Commission? It's like this, the first thing that Jesus does when he's raised from the dead is he's going to rebuke his apostles. It's what he does. This is the grace of shame at its finest. We see very clearly that the risen Christ holds us accountable for his gracious revelation. Unbelief, wherever it is found, must not be tolerated but it is especially to be eschewed by the men who have been commissioned to proclaim the gospel of Christ. It is shameful for ministers to be ashamed of the gospel. Of course, they're not going to say that they're ashamed of the gospel, but what they say and what they do shows that they have given more to the fear of man than the fear of God. No one who is ashamed of the gospel should ever 
be up here. And the pastor search committee, the congregation, when you guys decide who the next associate pastor is going to be, he must be a God-fearing man. He must fear God over man. He must never be ashamed of the gospel. Woe to all those ministers, ministers, who deny Christ with their words, with their actions, who give their hearts to men and not to the Son of Man. We see also that some people just refuse to believe good things sometimes. We know this is true for ourselves. When we kick against the goads of God's glorious doctrines that contradict our fleshly mindset, that cut to the heart of our sins. Sometimes we don't want to believe the things of Scripture. Or we'll, we'll confess that we believe. And when that sword of the Spirit is, is trying to cut you, you say, no, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not doing that. A famous apologist an evidential apologist, he goes around the world and fields various questions. He usually speaks at universities, a lot of time for Q&A. And usually uh, someone who is in his uh, situation will, will be asked questions about predestination and, and God and evil and free will. These are the you know, hot-button issues. And I watched a brief video, and this, this is something that's par for the course for this man. And he says, I just don't understand some things as far as God and evil. And welcome to the club, right? But he says, I wish that there were some things in Scripture that were different. I wish it wasn't that way. And maybe he's just trying to draw sympathy with the unbeliever here who knows that this is a difficult doctrine, whatever it is. I wish some things were different in Scripture. How dare he? How dare any of us? act that way. But that's how we do. We respond that way to, to hard truths. Oh, we're going to confess it. Yeah, six, six books. Believe, believe all of it. When Spirit pushes, hasn't he said it? Hasn't he spoken to you through his word? Will you not believe it? How will your actions demonstrate whether you believe or don't? Do we believe the word of God as it is? Do we say, this is just, it's too hard for me to understand it, but that's, that's okay because, Lord, your mind is, is infinite and mine is not. And your, your, your mind is, is, you are holy, pure, and my mind is fleshly at times. I will submit mine to yours. That is the attitude that we ought to have when we come to the word of God. But sometimes people, maybe even deflated by their own sin, say, this grace is just too good to be true. Resurrection is too good of a story. It ends too, too well for it to be true. Surely the gospel is, is too good to be true for my own sins, to cleanse me from everything that I have done. Will we receive the promises of Christ or not? Will we trust in them as promises from our risen Lord or not? 
when we reject the promises of Christ, we are like these disciples. In fact, worse, because we have the fullness of the revelation. Why do we mourn and toil within when it is ours to hope in God? Dear ones, do not needlessly deny yourselves the comfort that your grieving spirits need. You don't need to be a Debbie Downer, or if you're a male, a pessimistic Perry. You have resurrection hope. Will you act like it? That resurrection hope addresses your sins, fuels you for everyday living, energizes you for parenting, is your source for continuing in that relationship, continuing to to work in that capacity. The resurrection is your life. Will you believe it? Let it be said of us that was said of the Puritans, it wasn't that Protestantism was too grim to be true, but too glad to be true. That's what C.S. Lewis says. It's too glad to be true. The Puritans have this... People paint the Puritans negatively, thinking they're just a bunch of sourpusses, like a bunch of downers. Well, they, they were downers in the sense that they knew themselves to be very sinful, and they hated themselves for their sin. But they coupled that, that downcast spirit with, with joy, hope in the resurrection. Joy was their posture. That was their default. That's how they live. That's how we ought to live as well, with the joy of the Lord being our strength for every single day. Will we believe it? Will we act like we believe it? Of course, we know that this refusal to believe good things, we know this to be true of our own family, our friends, our neighbors that we've shared the gospel with, but they are blinded by their sin, and so they prefer their sin to the Savior. All this reminds us that belief in the resurrection is a gift from God. Your mind has to be renewed. Your eyes have to be opened. Your heart has to be open. And that takes the work, the gracious work of the Spirit. Don't you ever boast that you believe? It wasn't you primarily. Yes, you did believe. You did come to Christ. But you would not have come unless the Father who sent the Son draws you, brings you by the power of the Spirit to him. This is a gift for which we should be thanking the Lord every single day. Let us also cultivate an eager acceptance of the Word of God, bookending our scripture reading with with zealous prayers for understanding on the one hand and submission to walk in all of His ways on the other. Jesus didn't just leave His disciples downcast, though. He didn't leave them as rebuked disciples. He... He gives hope. He sends them out. Verse 15, And he said to them, Go into all the world to proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Restored, they are, now they are on a renewed mission. Go. They are to do what they've already been tasked with doing. But this time, they go from the standpoint of having resurrection life in them. 
Whereas formerly they were speaking of Christ and his and the gospel, the good news of, of Jesus, even anticipating the death and resurrection to some degree. Now they begin with that posture. They begin with renewed lives. They begin with the sight of the sun risen, glorious. And they have one message to go with, and it is the gospel. It is all the things, in Matthew's gospel, it's all the things that Jesus taught them. They are to go with the word of Christ. They are to go preaching Christ himself, Christ crucified, Christ risen, Christ ascended, Christ seated. Christ in all his glory, in all of scripture. This is how Jesus' ministry began in chapter 1, proclaiming the gospel of God, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And they are to go to the whole of creation. Do not stop until you drop dead. Do not stop until someone kills you or the Lord takes you. Because the world, the whole world, needs the gospel. And there's a lot of the world preach the rule of Christ, preach the kingdom of Christ, the righteousness of Christ to all, to anyone, to everyone. The Father has set his anointed one as king on his holy hill forevermore. Despite appearances, they are to preach the repentance and they will see citywide transformation. If it worked in Jonah's case, how much more in yours, disciples? Now that the Lord is risen, now that he is ascended, now that he is king over all, being with you. Verse 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Jesus promises life to those who believe, but death for those who do not. If you read the book of Acts, you see on the one hand messages, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. But then you also see in other verses, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. So we see here, believe and be baptized. We might be a little unsettled by verse 16. Yeah, verse 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Is Jesus adding baptism? Is this like a salvation by works? Of course not. But we have such a low view of baptism today. It doesn't comport with the view of the New Testament that valued baptism, that saw it as necessary for the Christian. The Reformers used this verse for baptism. It's one of their proof texts to promote baptism. So we ask, are we too timid to say such things? Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. In your gospel messaging, do you, do you add and is baptized? Or do you just say, Believe, and you'll be saved. 
You'll see both of those in the book of Acts. Because baptism is important. It is associated with faith. Faith and baptism go together. As people come to Christ by faith, it is expected that they would be baptized right away. And if we can't say verse 16, then our tradition has not served us well. Mark says it. We can say it if Mark says it. And Peter influenced Mark's gospel. And Peter says something that's even perhaps more controversial. In 1 Peter 3.21, now baptism saves you. Now, I'm not preaching through 1 Peter, but what's he getting at? It's not that, even as he says in, in, that, in, that, uh, in that chapter, it's not that the removal of dirt is the fundamental thing. and it's, it's, it's a spiritual matter. There's spiritual cleansing that needs to happen. The cleansing of the conscience because of dead works, because of sin. But baptism is a sign of judgment and salvation. The waters of judgment that, that crash against the ark. We are saved as we are in the ark. Judgment is averted. And salvation is accomplished. And that's what baptism signifies. That's what baptism seals. It is natural for the sign of new life, for baptism, to be joined with trust in Christ as new life. And what we see in these words, then, is that Christ is Christ's promise that as his disciples are faithful to go and to gospelize the whole creation, he will be faithful to bring people to newness of life. Wouldn't you want the sign of the thing signified? Certainly. And at the end of this gospel, Mark assures us that the signs did take place. That's how he finishes the gospel. Confirm the message by accompanying signs. Therefore, whole creation proclamation is sure to happen. Christ is on the throne. And he wasn't with just his apostles as he told them to go and proclaim. He's with us as well. So our faith-filled expectation, our confidence from Scripture is the worldwide conversion of sinners. That's not to say no one will be in hell. As we see here, if you don't believe, you're condemned. Jesus spoke of hell very regularly. That is a real place. And if you're not in Christ, you will go there. You will be sent there. And justice will be done. But at the same time, we have to acknowledge what Christ's purpose is here. He intends the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. And if Christ intends that, will he not do it? If he's with his Apostles, if he's now with his ministers, surely the gospel will go forth. Surely the power of the gospel will be demonstrated in this town and that, in the whole world. With joy, we expect then people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to bend the knee and to do so with joy, acknowledging Christ as their risen Lord and Savior. 
Not only will Christ's promise hold true, but he will confirm it by signs. And some of these signs that I just read, these disciples have already performed in some degree. But others will make their debut in the book of Acts. There are exorcisms here. Both We saw exorcisms in the Gospel of Mark, and we see exorcisms in the book of Acts. These exorcisms show Christ's kingly rule over the powers of darkness. There is new tongues as well. The gift of speaking in tongues. That's a a new gift of the Spirit given the apostles to show Christ's kingly rule to break down language barriers. We see that most powerfully at Pentecost in Acts 2. When people were hearing the gospel, they were hearing the wonderful works of God in their own tongue. These real earthly languages that these men were speaking, that they didn't learn they were speaking because God had gifted them that speech so that those people, Parthians and others, could hear the gospel in their own tongue and so believe and be baptized and be saved. Then we see picking up serpents with their hands. This is odd. But we do worship God of the supernatural. And, you know, if, if he can create the whole world out of nothing, surely he can protect his, people, his ministers of the gospel from being harmed by venomous snakes. And why? Why does he say this? To show that Christ has, has placed his foot firmly on Satan's little head, crushing it into the ground, allowing the snake no longer to deceive the nations. Satan doesn't deceive the nations any longer. Christ rules. Towards the end of Acts, chapter 28, Paul providentially is shipwrecked and swims his way into the island of Malta, and he's making a fire, and a viper latches itself on Paul's hand. Remember that. And when the Maltese saw this, they thought, okay, well, he's just a criminal getting justice. He he escaped that shipwreck, but but providence knows, justice knows what he's really done, and he's going to die, and providence has sent this snake to end him. But he doesn't die. He survives. And when he does, these Maltese change their mind and think that he was a god. They knew that something divine was working in and through Paul. They saw very clearly the powerful signs of the risen Lord through Paul. And there's mention of poison. If they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. I imagine that means they drink poison on accident, not that they're, you know, purposely, here's poison, let's just test the Lord. That's not what's going on. And there's no record in the book of Acts or in the New Testament of anyone drinking poison and then surviving. Does that mean that it's, it didn't happen? No. There is testimony in the early church, though, that, that at least in one instance this happened. Papias, a disciple of the Apostle John, tells of a miraculous encounter that Eustace Barsabbas, you might remember him, he was one of the two that the apostles nominated for slot number 12 after Judas hanged himself. And Matthias, was was, uh, he took that spot. But Eustace Barsabbas was, was chosen, was nominated because of his godliness. And Papias says that he had drunk poison, but by the Lord's grace, suffered no harm. 
And that was recounted in Eusebius's church history. You can take it for what it's worth. It's not scripture. But there is at least one instance in early church history of this happening, and it's not, again, beyond the imagination of someone who trusts in Christ for God to preserve his people, even if they accidentally drink poison. This is not, by the way, a prescription for you guys to go do those things. This is not Mark's intent for you to go find some venomous snakes and play with them. It's not God's intent. I'm I'm saying this very seriously. It's not God's intent for you to go find some poison and then drink it and test the Lord. These are there were healings. We saw healings in the old in in uh, in the Gospel of Mark, and then we see them in in Acts to show Christ's kingly rule to be one of life and harmony and peace of restoration as signs of the resurrection. Now, I've only just skimmed the surface on on these miracles. And if you're dissatisfied with these few details, that's okay with me. Just read the book of Acts. There's a lot more. And it's powerful stuff. It's It's amazing. And these powerful signs continued in the days of the apostles. Why? To confirm themselves as messengers of the Lord. As they were preaching the gospel, these signs corroborated the authenticity of the message. And so when the apostolic age ceased, we then expect the cessation of these sign gifts. That's why I said it's not something that you should be looking out to do, having a gift of miracle, even though miracles do happen today. Or again, finding some snakes and playing with them. You do not have license from God's word to do that. You will likely pay for it. We must not be skeptical that the power of God unto salvation came with powerful signs. Jesus said it would, and behold, it did. He promises his presence. He promises, he gives them these powerful signs, and he promises his presence with this word. We don't need to be skeptical because Christ was present with them through and through. He went up into heaven bodily. He is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. He ascended. He is seated. What these acts mean is that he is now judging. He is now ruling. He is now interceding for us, his people. Now we know that this commission was given to the eleven. And as God works through history, these 11 would pass on the gospel call to pastors and evangelists and missionaries. That's what Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, that the foundation of the church has been, has been laid. Christ is the chief cornerstone, but the foundation is that of the apostles and the prophets. That's been laid. The church is built on that foundation. That's one reason we, we don't expect the sign gifts to continue today. And there's no uppercase A apostles today. We have just your regular Joe Schmo pastor who has the presence of God, who has the power of the gospel because Christ is with him and who is preaching by means of the Spirit. And the word will not return unto to the Lord vain. It will accomplish the purpose for which he sends it. 
So you just have regular teaching elders and ruling elders, regular missionaries, wholly devoted to the Word of God, bringing the gospel to every corner of creation. And as you have opportunity, you should share the gospel. I'm not interested in laying some kind of evangelical guilt, saying that, you know, if you're not out in the street doing some some preaching over there, that, you know, you're failing as a person, as a mom. What's a mom to do with all all of the children? How can she just have the time to to go out and, and preach the gospel? Well, she has children she can preach the gospel to. And as she has opportunity with her family or friends, she preaches the gospel. She tells of the works of Christ. What's the farmer to do who, who interacts mainly with his crops, his seed? He just gospelize the seed? Is he supposed to be out there 40 hours a week in the world doing some evangelist ministry? No. But as he has opportunity, he can give the gospel to people. And he can pray for the work of the Lord. As you can see, the, the work of the seed is it's sown. You can advance the gospel through your own prayers. Pray for those that God has set up for the continued ministry of the word. Pray for that power to continue whenever or wherever the gospel is preached. Pray for it to, to penetrate your heart and the hearts of those that do not know Christ. The hearts of those that do know Christ but need a a renewal, a radical transformation. You can also advance the gospel through your participation in church. Come and worship as often as you can. Support ministers, support missionaries, support teachers who have been appointed for the gospel. Adore Christ the King, who turns doubters into worshipers, who makes men who fled into fishers of men, who took 12 men and changed the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that everyone who believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Praise God that that promise holds true today. As Christ said to Peter at the start of his ministry, Remember when Peter was, was out to get him, Jesus was, was praying alone, and Peter comes, says, let's go. Jesus says, let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Church, let us be going to every town, to the whole of creation, for Christ to, to preach there also. That is why he came and rose from the dead. Amen. Almighty God, fountain of wisdom, you know our necessities before we ask, and even our ignorance in asking. We ask you to have compassion on our weaknesses and those things which for our unworthiness we dare not or for our blindness we cannot ask. Grant to give us for the worthiness of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.